at Colossae. And today we are going through Colossians chapter 1, verses 3 to 8. Colossians chapter 1, verses 3 to 8. And Paul writes, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus, and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these words. And as we consider these words and consider your grace and your love and your gospel, Lord, I pray that you would speak through me to your people for your glory that my words would be your words, and that your words would go forth and bear fruit for your glory. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. I'm sure that for most of you, um, when you pray, you, uh, a big part of your prayers are, are saying thanks. Um, I, I know a lot of times in my prayers I, I I say thanks for various things, and, and oftentimes I, I find that I'm either asking for forgiveness um, for my sins, or um, or I'm interceding for somebody, or I'm saying thanks. And uh, and given what we truly deserve um, as sinners, and the grace that we've experienced um, through the gospel and salvation, and and not only that, but all the blessings that we have, we. We ought to give thanks. And we, we have a, a lot to give thanks for. And, and um, for a lot of you, you may have this tradition around Thanksgiving time where you go around the table and everybody has to share one thing they're thankful for or several things for the year, what God has done in their life. And, and uh, some of you, you may do that um, more often than just at Thanksgiving. Um, it, it, it's a great tradition. And and we do it, and we, we try to do it more often, um, you know, in our daily meals our, at dinner and, and go around the table. Um, it's a practice that all of us should do, is to count our blessings, to be thankful. And I'm sure some of you um, do that. Um, and there's many things to be thankful for in our lives. It doesn't take long to look at the abilities God has given us, the blessings, the food, shelter, and clothing, the spiritual blessings. And um, there are many things in this life that should provoke us to give thanks. Um, and, but it's, it's not just the blessings. Um, sometimes uh, we're provoked to give thanks because we see the calamities or sufferings of others. Um, I see this uh, oftentimes in my life, um, you know, uh, when I've come to a traffic stop or, or whatever, and I see a homeless person, and um, just not the simple fact that they're homeless, but sometimes there's something about the way they're dressed that you can tell that it's, it's not just homelessness, but 
There might be drugs or alcohol or, or some substance abuse or, or mental illness or something um, that there's not just a story to their life, but there's stories. And uh, sometimes I'm convicted and, and I have to give thanks that, you know, Lord, but for the grace of God, there go I. And it's true, if we take an honest look at ourselves, there, there's probably several times and instances within our lives as God has led us that it could have gone the wrong way. And it could have ended up in, in very serious calamities or sufferings or prison time or death. Um, and for some of us, God has taken us to those places and has um, saved us from out of those places and has delivered us. And so we, we can even give thanks in those circumstances. Um, there's a, a benefit of um, having an attitude of gratitude, of giving thanks, of counting your blessings one by one, as the song says. And, and, and this, this attitude of gratitude, it, it's interesting because even, even unbelievers and secular counselors understand this concept of thanksgiving, the benefit of thanksgiving, the benefit of having an attitude of gratitude, and, and they affirm and they promote this. And, and I've often used this in my counseling and to to explain this attitude of gratitude and, and how giving thanks can um, promote this, this positive attitude which leads to other things, which leads to you being a joyful and contented person, which leads you to being more pleasing to be around, which leads to more friends, which leads to um, being a better employee or a better um, friend or better brother or sister or husband or wife or whatever it may be and better relationships leads to more joy and more happiness and, and so this attitude of gratitude can have a, a profound effect upon your life and, and we as Christians should especially have this attitude of gratitude in our lives and, and should be thankful but it's interesting, and I think about this sometimes in my prayers when I thank God for things, that sometimes there will be an instance where I thank God and, and, and that whatever I thank him for will lead me to think of something else. And that leads me to think of something else. For instance, you know, oftentimes as I, I walk around and, and I, I see the, the puffy white clouds and the, the clear blue sky, and I, I thank God that he's made the clouds um, and he's made them white and he's made the sky blue and he chose those colors. And I thank him for the clouds and the sky and the colors and even the green trees and the way they sway and to see his artwork in creation and, and then I, I think that, that he gave me eyes to see. And, and so I thank him for the eyesight that he's given me because not all people have eyesight or even clear eyesight. And so that's another thing to thank him for. And then the fact that he's given me a mind to perceive those things and to think about them and to contemplate them. And so that's another level of thanksgiving. And then the fact that he has saved me and taken off that, that, that veil of unbelief so that I see the world as it really is and see that, that, that 
artwork and creation is, is not just a chain reaction of circumstance and chance, um, but is his handiwork, his intelligent design throughout creation. And so I praise him. And so oftentimes we can start a prayer of thanksgiving that leads to a chain reaction of thanksgiving all the way back to the creator. And it's interesting because in this passage right here, this is essentially what the Apostle Paul is doing as he writes this section of his letter to the Colossians. It's, it's really just one giant run-on sentence of thanks for them. Where he begins and he says, we thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you. Because of your faith, because of your love, because of the gospel because of the effects of the gospel, because of Epaphras. And there's several things throughout this passage which Paul gives thanks for, and we could even dissect into many instances. But in looking at this passage, I saw here seven reasons. Seven reasons for the Apostle Paul and his companions to give thanks for the church at Colossae. Because it's not just the Apostle Paul. He does write it, write the letter, but he says we. So we, so that that could mean Timothy, who, who he mentions in his introduction. But I think it means more than Timothy because um, I think it's all his companions, those that are with him, maybe those that come visit him. It could extend to all the other apostles. It could extend to, um, you know, the church at Rome where he writes from. But he says we, and, and I, I think it means those that he's close to, but it could by extension mean all the believers. But he says we always give thanks for you. And first and foremost, the first reason why he gives thanks to them is because of their faith in Christ. Because they've believed in Christ. They've, they've placed their hope in Christ for salvation. They, they believe that Christ Jesus was who he said he was. That he was the Son of God. That he was God in the flesh. That he did exactly what they claimed he did. That he came and he took on human flesh and he walked amongst us and he lived a life perfectly according to the law of God and became that perfect sacrifice for us and for our sins. And that he took our sins to the cross and bore them in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live unto righteousness. And by his wounds we are healed and that not only did he pay for our sins, but he was buried and on the third day he rose again. And that sacrifice was accepted by the Father. In the proof that he was raised up from the dead. But he gives thanks not just because they believed. But because their belief, their faith is a gift from God. And Paul writes this to Ephesians. And you can see this in, in Ephesians chapter 2. And, and many of you have, have no doubt memorized this verse. Ephesians chapter 2 verses 8 to 9. And in Ephesians chapter 2, he says, Paul writing to the Ephesians, which is actually at the same time he writes to the Colossians. He says to the church at Ephesus, 
For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And it's not just the salvation is a gift, that that grace that they have been saved by, but the construction, the grammar, points to the fact that their faith is also a gift. That it comes as a package deal. The grace of God coming through the medium of faith. And that God gave them the faith to believe upon Christ. So Paul thanks these believers in Colossae because of their faith in Christ for salvation. That that salvation, that faith is a gift from God. But also that that salvation is a result of the fruits of gospel ministry. And it's not just salvation, but that he thanks them for, because faith, it begins with salvation, but it doesn't end there, because we're, we're commanded to walk by faith and not by sight. And there's, there's two areas in which every believer needs faith. First and foremost, for salvation to believe upon Christ. But we need faith for perseverance as well. Our, our faith doesn't end at salvation. It grows throughout our whole life as we live the Christian life, as we walk by faith and not by sight, and, and, and strive to be pleasing to the Lord and to um, persevere in the faith until the time at which our faith becomes sight and God brings us home and we no longer need faith. So Paul thanks the Colossians for their faith in Christ, but it's not just the faith for salvation, but faith for perseverance as well. We see this in, in, in that, that quintessential passage about faith in Hebrews chapter 10 and 11. And at the end of you know, Hebrews chapter 10, it, it, the beginning of Hebrews chapter 10, most of it, he's talking about Christ's sacrifice. And how great this sacrifice is in calling the, the Hebrews to believe fully in this perfect sacrifice for their sins. And then he says in Hebrews chapter 10 verse 35, Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come, and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. And then he goes on, he says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. That's the definition of faith. That we're assured of the things that we have hoped for in Christ, of salvation. And, and not only that, but we are convicted of those things which we have not seen. That is faith. And, and, and then the writer to the Hebrews goes on throughout all of chapter 11, um, mentioning these examples of faith throughout the whole Old Testament. And that we are to likewise have that faith. And, and this is 
what Paul is thanking God for in the Colossians. That it's not just their faith for salvation, but their faith through the trials that they are facing. And the evidence of that is that they're loving the brethren. They're doing good works. They're bearing fruit. And so Paul writes this letter to them, and there is some instruction in it, but it isn't written to the Colossians to correct error. Um, but it's written to encourage them, to instruct them, to fortify them against error. In essence, to strengthen their faith. And so, first, he thanks God because of their faith. Second, he thanks God because of their love for other believers. And, and, and he writes it here in, in verse 4, in verse 4, he said, the love that you have for all the saints. All of them. All of them, meaning, meaning those who are near and those who are far. Those who are close to them in, in the church and, and those who are in other churches. Those that they hear about in the church at Ephesus or the church at Philippi or the other churches throughout the Greco-Roman world or the church in Jerusalem. All the saints, every single one of them. And for those who are near, it's, it's not just those that I agree with or those who are just like me or those who look like me, act like me, have the same personality as me, same background, same gender. No, it's all of them. This is, this is a lesson for us that, that we are to love all of those within our proximity, all of those believers who are near, as we're called to love one another. That's the, the, the second commandment. The first is to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it, to love our neighbors as ourselves. And it's interesting that Jesus says, as ourselves, because that implies that we already love ourselves. We don't need to be taught to do that. And it's interesting that in our secular age, there, there's that, that, that mantra, well, you need to love yourself first. Jesus says, you already do that, and you do it very well. You do it very well because you think of yourself more than you think of anybody else. And even when you think of other people, you think of it from the perspective of self. He said, no, you need to love your neighbor. That's where you need to work on. And you need to love your neighbor as you do yourself. In other words, as Paul writes in Philippians chapter 2, to think of others as more significant than yourself because we think of ourselves all the time. But here he says that the Colossians are showing love for all the saints. Those who are near, those who are not like them, those who are different than them, and those who are far, those that they hear about, those where the gospel is reaching in other cities, those that aren't just their own ethnicity or their own nationality, um, those that are in hard-to-reach places, those that um, are in places who were once their national enemies. It says they, they love all the saints. 
And, and, and as one preacher has said, you only love your church so much as you love the most difficult person in your church. Or the most awkward person in your church. Or the most immature person in your church. Because we're called to love them all. And we, we naturally gravitate towards those it's easy to love. And those who are like us. But we need to love everyone. John writes in 1 John 4.19, he says, We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And yes, it is sometimes difficult to love others. But we love others when we understand the love of God for us. That there's nothing in us that would commend God to love us. He loves us because he loves us. Because he is love. He loves us because of who he is, not because of who we are. And so we need to love others because of who he is, not because of who we are or um, because it's a benefit to us, but because God is love, and he's commanded us to love others. And so Paul thanks the Colossians. He thanks God in his prayers always because of their faith in Christ, because of their love for other Christians, and and third, because of their hope in Christ. Verse 5, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel. This is where all hope or any hope that is lasting and, and, and steadfast and is sure is found. The only hope for mankind is in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And, and it's interesting, we, we hope in so many things. And I've heard not too long ago, um, John MacArthur has said, You can't live without hope. You can't live your life, anybody, they can't live their life without hope. Because otherwise you'd be discouraged all the time and down and depressed and in despair. But the hope that you live your life with, it's of various forms. And many of them are legitimate. We hope in... In good meals, we hope in good fellowship, we hope in a paycheck, we hope in a, a weekend and time off, in vacations, in material blessings, and, and many of those are not wrong. Those are good things, those are good gifts that God gives us, those are things we need to live this life. But all those hopes are temporary, they're, they're good for a time. I hope in rest tonight. And and that's not entirely wrong, but that hope will end after the night's over. It's a temporary hope. And Paul has said in in 1 Corinthians 15, he said, If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. Saying that if, if our prayers, if our 
hopes for Christ, as we pray for all the various things that we need and all, all the trials and challenges we face in this world, and, and we place our hope in that, that God will answer our prayers, if that's the extent of our hope and of our belief, then we are of all men most to be pitied. But our hope in Christ goes beyond the blessings of this world in this life. Our hope in Christ goes all the way to heaven. Our hope is sure and steadfast. It's not temporary as the things of this world. This is why Paul thanks the Colossians because their hope was sure and steadfast. And, and the writer to the Hebrews, he, he comments on, on this in, in Hebrews chapter 6. And I, I'd, I'd like you to turn there and read this about the nature of of our heavenly hope, about the nature of our hope in Christ. In Hebrews chapter 6 and verses 16 to 20, the writer to the Hebrews writes, he writes this, he, he had just finished talking about this covenant, this covenant with, between God and Abraham that God swore by himself. And because God made a promise to Abraham by himself, that promise is sure. And that covenant was that God would redeem a people whom we in Christ are a part of. And we are recipients and benefactors of that covenant to, God, to Abraham. And the writer to the Hebrews, he goes on and he says in chapter 6, verse 16, he says, For people swear by something greater than themselves. And in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And what he's saying, that he says this is a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters in, into the inner place behind the curtain, the Holy of Holies, the Holy of Holies in heaven, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. This is a picture, this, this word forerunner is a picture in ancient times at, of, of the person on a ship. When that ship would come up into harbor, that person would jump off the ship with a rope, swim to the shore, tie that rope to the harbor, and then they pull that ship in, and it was an anchor for that ship. And Jesus has gone forward as a forerunner for us into heaven, into the Holy of Holies, to intercede on our behalf, to be that perfect sacrifice. And that sacrifice is perfect. It's sure. It's steadfast. It's an anchor for our souls. Because Christ's sacrifice was, was perfect, and complete, our sins are paid for. Completely. And there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is no one to condemn us. We have a sure and secure hope. 
that's in heaven waiting for us. Peter writes about this in 1 Peter chapter 1. And I'd like you to turn there and see this. 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1 in verses 3 to 5. Peter writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Look at what Peter writes. He says, God has caused us to be born again to a living hope. And if God has caused it, if God has done the action, then that action cannot be undone. And it's a living hope, talking about Jesus, that he lives. And there's an inheritance waiting for us. And that inheritance is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. And it is kept, laid up, stored for us in heaven. And so if you are saved in Christ, if you are born again to this living hope, you cannot lose your salvation. And anyone who tells you that is spouting off heresy. Heresy that denies the sufficiency of Christ's sacrifice. And they need to read their Bibles. Because this sacrifice was sure and steadfast and it is secure and that hope is kept in heaven for us. But that hope is not seen. That hope is unseen. We hope because of faith. Because of the faith that he has given us. Paul talks about this. That's the nature of hope. That, that you can imagine what you hope for and you can contemplate it and you can even read about it and study it, but you don't see it. It's a hope that is unseen. Paul writes about this in Romans chapter 8. He says in Romans chapter 8, verses 18 to 25, he, he says... <clears throat> For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. That the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. That we know that our hope is sure and steadfast and secure because God is started with God and it ended with God and God secures it. And the Holy Spirit is that 
down payment for our hope. But we don't see it. We wait for it with patience. We wait for it. First Peter, and Peter writes in First Peter 1.8, he says, Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice. We don't see our hope. Our hope is unseen. It's sure and secure. It's unseen. But it is a hope that is coming. He will return. He will return. He will bring us home. He will deliver us. And if we go, if we die before he returns, we will be with him. So whether we die first or he returns, we'll, we're going to be with the Lord. Our hope is coming. He will return to the earth. And Peter says, because of this hope in, in chapter 1 of 1 Peter, he says in verse 13, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. What Peter is saying is that we live our lives in hope, in the hope of Christ, in the hope of Christ's return, in the hope of Christ's redemption, and that we prepare our minds for action, for work in this world, that we tie up those loose ends in our thinking, and we fix our minds on him. John Calvin writes in his commentary <clears throat> on this passage in Colossians, he writes, For the hope of eternal life will never be inactive in us, so as not to produce love in us. For it is of necessity that the man who is fully persuaded that a treasure of life is laid up for him in heaven will aspire thither, there, <laughs> looking down upon this world. Meditation, however, upon the heavenly life stirs up our affections both to the worship of God and to the exercise of love. What he's saying is that we, we worship God purely and we love others genuinely when our hope is fixed in heaven, when we meditate upon our hope, when we think about our hope, when we contemplate our hope, when we live in light of our hope then we are able to worship God purely and to love others as he, as he has loved us. So the Apostle Paul and his companions, they, they, they give thanks in their prayer because of the Colossians' faith in Christ, because of their love for Christians, for all the saints. Third, because of their hope in Christ. And fourth, because they heard the gospel of Christ. Because they heard the gospel. But why does Paul thank God because they heard the gospel? Because everything that comes before that, that, that someone had to be sent to them, that someone had to bring the gospel to them, that someone had to be bold enough and faithful enough to proclaim that gospel, not knowing whether they would believe or not. Not knowing whether they would um, become hostile or angry or reject that gospel. Someone was faithful. Someone was bold. 
someone proclaimed that gospel to them, and they heard it, and they believed, and that someone was Epaphras. And Epaphras was sent by God. Paul writes about this, this, this interesting way in which God works through gospel ministry and evangelists and church planting and missionaries in Romans chapter 10. Because all things begin and end with God. For from him and to him and through him are all things. To him be glory forever and ever, as you know, Paul writes in Romans 11.36. But um, in the chapter previous, in Romans chapter 10, in verses 13 and following, he says, Paul writes, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. This was Epaphras. Epaphras had beautiful feet to the Colossians. Because he came and preached the good news. And it's interesting that even in this passage, it's almost like a chain of events going forward. Just like um, that, this passage in Colossians, in the beginning of Colossians. that It's a, a chain of events, a chain of thanksgiving. But Paul writes that first, we must call on the Lord to be saved. But how are we to call on him in whom we have not believed? Because before we believed, we did not believe. And how are we to believe in him of whom we have never heard? Because um, before we believed, we never heard. We may have heard about Jesus and about God, but we didn't hear in the sense of saving faith. We didn't hear the fullness of the gospel. And how are they to hear without someone preaching? Someone came to us and preached the gospel to us. Someone proclaimed the gospel to us. And God sent that someone. And so Paul thanks God because they heard the gospel. Because God sent someone. Because that someone preached. Because they understood. But also because God gave them ears to hear the gospel. They would not have understood it unless God opened their ears. And, and our Lord Jesus, he, he says this. He, he says, salvation from beginning to end is a work of God. No one can boast. As Paul writes in Ephesians 2, it, it is a gift of God so that no one may boast. So at the end of the day, from beginning to end, salvation it is all to the glory of God. And even Jesus himself, uh, he attests to this in Matthew chapter 13. And you can turn there and read along with you, Matthew. Read along with me, Matthew chapter 13. And Jesus said some hard things. He said a lot of hard things to people who thought they were righteous, who thought they knew something about God. And he says something to these people that he's preaching to in Matthew chapter 13. And verses 13 and following, he says, This is why I speak to them in parables. Because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, 
nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, You will indeed hear, but never understand. And you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly, I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Saying, God opens the ears for us to hear spiritual truth, for us to hear the gospel, for us to understand the gospel, for us to turn and be saved. He gives us the grace, he gives us the faith, he gives us the understanding to believe upon him. And part of Jesus' parables were judgment. Judgment concerning the kingdom of God because they had light and yet they did not believe. But for those who did believe, it was by the will of God. As even John writes in chapter 1 of his gospel. So Paul this chain of thanksgiving begins with the Colossians' faith in Christ. He thanks God. He thanks them because of their love for Christians, because of their hope in Christ, because they heard the gospel of Christ. And fifthly, because of the proliferation of the gospel of Christ. And and I I chose that word um, carefully. I was looking for several words, but... There's only, that was the only word that I could see, the proliferation of the gospel of Christ, because this is what was happening. The gospel was proliferating. It was, it was expounding. It was multiplying. It was increasing. It was bearing fruit, as, as Paul writes in, in Colossians 1, that, that it's bearing fruit and increasing throughout the whole world, as it also does among you, as he writes in verse 6. That this, this gospel is proliferating. It's bearing fruit and increasing. It's bearing fruit in two ways. In its breadth, as it spreads throughout the world as almost like a virus. And, and he says the whole world. And, and what he means by the whole world is the known world at that time. But it would spread to the whole world. And it hasn't spread to the whole world yet, but it will. It will spread. The the knowledge of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the seas. That's going to happen. And, And this gospel is spreading like a virus throughout the whole world. So it's bearing fruit in its breath throughout the whole world and in their region of Colossae, not just in that particular um, city, but in the cities around them, as even Epaphras would go to Herapolis and Laodicea, which are nearby in that valley. This gospel is spreading, and it's bearing fruit as it does spread because people are believing. People are believing, and they're being saved. They're coming to know Jesus Christ, and, and they're establishing churches. 
in a place where there's, there was pagan worship, multiple gods and, and, and Greco-Roman mythology and philosophies. And yet this gospel is going out in the power of the spirit and in many ways by weak men and women. But it's the power of the gospel that the power of the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. It's the gospel that is the power. It's not the men. It's not the, the women. It's not the, the money that's supporting them. It's not their credibility or their, their um, fame. It's the gospel. And that gospel is bearing fruit. It's bearing fruit in breadth as it spreads, but it's also bearing fruit in depth. And this is true in the Colossians' um, love for others, in their works, as they serve God and they show their love for the saints, for all the saints, as they reach out to others in their um, city and in their um, workplaces and in their families, and they proclaim that gospel, it's showing that it's not only bearing fruit in the breadth as it spreads, but it's bearing fruit in the depth as the believers are being sanctified and they're growing, but they're also reproducing themselves. And this is interesting because the person who brought the gospel wasn't Paul, it was Epaphras. He brought them the gospel. He planted the church. And in, in chapter 4, verses 12, it says, Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you, and for those in Laodicea and Herapolis. Laodicea and Herapolis was nearby cities to Colossae. And Paul writes that Epaphras, who is one of you, hinting at the fact that he probably came from Colossae, and many scholars believe in, in looking at um, the Apostle Paul's writings, that Epaphras came to Ephesus, where he heard the gospel and then brought it back to Colossae and then preached that gospel and, and preached it to Laodicea and Herapolis. And so um, the gospel is bearing fruit in that it not only reached Colossae, but it's reproducing in, in, in that it's, it's producing ministers who are then going out and sharing the gospel. And then surely that Gospel would also bear fruit in, in, in salvation and, and would bring up other ministers. John MacArthur writes in his commentary on this. He says, he says, the gospel produces fruit both in the internal transformation of individuals and also in the external growth of the church. The two concepts are interrelated. The spiritual growth of individuals will lead to new converts being one to Christ. Which leads us to the sixth reason for Paul to thank God for the church at Colossae. He thanked him for, he thanked the believers for their faith in Christ, because of their love for Christians, because of their hope in Christ, because they heard the gospel of Christ, 
because of the proliferation of the gospel of Christ, and, and six, because of Epaphras and his ministry. Because he brought the gospel to them. And as I commented on that in Romans chapter 10, which spoke of the gospel ministry and how God sends preachers. That verse in Romans chapter 10, which Paul quotes, is actually from the Old Testament. And Paul's quoting from Isaiah chapter 52, verse 7. All the way back, this, this was God's plan from the beginning. That Israel would be a witness nation, that his salvation would extend to the ends of the earth, that his glory would be proclaimed throughout the whole world. And in Isaiah chapter 52, verse 7, I, Isaiah writes, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, Your God reigns. Your God reigns over the nations. Your God reigns over the sinfulness of mankind. Your God reigns in the fact that he saves sinners and he redeems sinners from their sin and he makes them his own people. He makes his enemies his people through salvation, through Christ. And Isaiah writes, this person who, who brings good news, he publishes peace. He's publishing a book of peace to the people he brings good news to. The, the peace of what? The peace of God between sinners and God. That God brings peace. And he also publishes salvation. And this is what Epaphras did. Epaphras brought good news. Epaphras published peace. Epaphras published salvation. Epaphras said to Colossae, your God reigns. Believe upon him. Glorify him. Proclaim him to your people. Live lives which are worthy of him and worthy of his name and his calling. And, and, and Epaphras, he, he not only brought this gospel to them, but he taught it to him, to them, in the depths of the gospel. Paul writes in Romans chapter 6, verse 17, he says, But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. What was that teaching? That teaching was the gospel. And that gospel... And some of you may have heard this saying uh, uh, about sanctification, head, heart, hands. It comes through the head, the gospel, the knowledge of God. It impacts the heart, engages the heart, inflames the will, and that will drives the hands and the feet for ministry. And Paul says this in Romans chapter 6, verse 6, 17. Thanks be to God that you who once were slaves of sin, you, you obeyed sin, sin was your master, you did whatever it asked you to, you lived a life of sin, but because of the gospel you have become obedient from the heart 
to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And so it's not just the gospel message that we need to hear and understand and believe, but it's the depths of the gospel and all the implications and applications of the gospel and the person and the work and the words of Jesus Christ that we need to learn and understand, believe upon, and live in. And this is what Epaphras did. This is what he taught. And this is what the Colossians did. So Paul thanks them because of Epaphras and his ministry. And lastly, Apostle Paul thanks the Colossians. He thanks God for the Colossians because of Epaphras' report. Verse 8 in Colossians chapter 1, he says, He has made known to us your love in the Spirit. All of this, this whole letter, this passage, everything within this letter, our understanding of the church at Colossae, the fact that they existed, all the benefits that the church has received through the letter to the Colossians in its teaching and preaching throughout church history, it's all because of Epaphras' report to Paul. Had Epaphras never gone to Paul, Paul would have never wrote this letter. But Epaphras came, and his report wasn't all negative. Yes, he did talk about the the heresies going on that were um, assaulting the church. But for the most part, Epaphras' report must have been good because this letter is not corrective. This letter is encouraging. It's instructive. But where it is somewhat corrective, it's, it's, it's not so much that he's correcting their error, but he's fortifying them against the error, errors that are around them. He's preparing them. Paul's strengthening the church. And so Paul thanks God because of the church at Colossae because of Epaphras' report, because of the gospel taking root, because of the gospel bearing fruit. And it's interesting because most people, and for any of you who have evangelized at all or much, you know that most people reject the gospel. Most people we share the gospel with will reject it. A lot of people are indifferent, some are hostile, some will listen to you, but for the most part, I'd say 95% or more will reject the gospel. And furthermore, most Christians don't proclaim the gospel. Or when we do, we're unclear and, and, and we do it awkwardly or weird, or, and that may be because of you know, our immaturity or our understanding or just the, the pressure in the moment and that we stumble over our words and we might use a bad analogy or a bad illustration. Um, <clears throat> but we don't proclaim the gospel as often as we should. And when we do, we're oftentimes unclear. But even in spite of that, the power of God goes forth through the gospel and it saves people. And Paul is amazed at this because someone went forward, someone preached the gospel, and that gospel 
took root. It took root in the Colossians, and then it bore fruit. It bore fruit. And this is evidence of the power of God. This is evidence of Epaphras' faithfulness. And it's, it's amazing. And, you know, we need news like this. We need news like this often. We need praise reports. And, you know, we would not have this letter, all the benefits of this letter, if it was not for Epaphras' praise report. You know, oftentimes, the church of Jesus Christ, we're, we're like an army at war. And we are in a spiritual war. We, spiritual warfare is true. We are in a spiritual battle. We live on a battlefield. And we, like an army at war, in any army at war, this happens. Soldiers get bogged down in the battle. They get discouraged. They get tired. They get weary. But then, this happens. You can be in the part of a battle as a soldier with the whole war raging on, and and this happens in every war. And you're weary, you're tired, you're discouraged, you're despairing, you're downcast. And then all of a sudden, you hear news of another unit's success and advancement on another part of the battlefield that you weren't even thinking about. And that success, whether it's information or whether they won a key victory, that success contributes to the whole war effort and it encourages you. And it strengthens you. And you give thanks to God. And whether we're bogged down here in our individual lives as Christians or as a local church... Know this, that the army of Jesus Christ is always advancing and succeeding. It's always marching forward, whether we notice it or not. God says, I have 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. To Elijah, he says that. And right now, currently, God probably has 7 million who have not bowed the knee to Baal and all the, the... heresies and false religions and philosophies and ideologies in our world. God has faithful believers. He has faithful churches. He has faithful preachers. His word is going forth. His people are going forth. His his war, his front lines are advancing. His people are advancing. We're always advancing whether or not we see it. And this was why Paul gave thanks and why he gave thanks to, in so many ways to the Colossians. And he writes in 2 Corinthians, he writes this, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, he says, talking about his ministry in verses 12 to 16, he says to the Corinthians, when I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, Even though a door was opened for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. It's almost like he was alone. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. 
For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? And the answer is no one. No one's sufficient for gospel ministry. But in there lies the power of God. And that the power of God is going forth through the gospel ministry in our individual lives and in churches and through missionaries and mission boards and movements all around the world. Through books and resources and Bible translations, through the internet, through radio, through print. The gospel is going forth by the power of God and it is bearing fruit. And in a sense, there is a fragrance from death to death. For those that who will not believe, who have rejected the gospel. And if that is you this morning here today, I plead with you to repent and believe upon the gospel because that is your only hope. Because you are a sinner and you deserve the wrath of God. And apart from Christ, the wrath of God hangs over you. And unless you repent and believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ, you will experience the wrath of God forever in the flames of hell. So repent and believe today. But for those of us who have received the gospel, that gospel was a fragrance of life unto life. And that person who brought that gospel to us, it was a life-giving, sweet aroma of salvation. And because of that, we thank God. And we thank God for the person that came to us, for his words, for the power of God in the gospel. And we live a life of thanks, knowing that God is doing a work in and through us in our churches and in other churches throughout the world. That his gospel is going forth. It is bearing fruit and increasing. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your gospel. We thank you that you did not leave us in the darkness, but you sent someone who preached the gospel to us, who shared this glorious gospel of salvation, and, and that not only have you sent someone to preach the gospel, but you did a work in our hearts and minds and our ears and you opened up our ears to hear the gospel. You opened up our minds to understand the gospel. You opened up our hearts to receive the gospel. You, in fact, gave us new hearts. You took out that heart of stone and gave us a heart of flesh that can feel, that can love, that can seek you. And we sought you and we thank you and we praise you. Lord, please give us boldness, wisdom, and opportunities to proclaim this gospel to the people around us. And we pray that that gospel will go forth in power through us and to others, that your name may be praised around us and throughout the whole world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.